0: He allowed actors to create a spontaneity and sometimes inarticulate dialogue that added to the heartbreak and humor of his characters. He's a man who had the courage to tell stories in his own way, and that is his great legacy. Those are words from director Barry Levinson on John Cassavetes' 1977 film Opening Night. Faces and Movies is podcast for each month that focus on the works of a different director or cinematographer, and each week I invite a guest on to discuss the film and the artist's filmography. Today we're talking about opening night, so a quick synopsis of the film is, a renowned actress teeters on the edge of a breakdown as she counts down the days towards a big Broadway opening. The film stars Jenna Rollins as Myrtle Gordon, John Cassavetti as Maurice Aarons, Ben Gazzara as Manny Victor, Joan Blondell as Sarah Good and Paul Stewart as David Samuels. It's written and directed by John Cassavetes, cinematography by Al Rubin, edited by Tom Cornwell, and music by Bo Harwood. Today, my guest is Martin Kessler. And I know Martin is a filmmaker, you're a writer, and all-around film fan. We actually know each other from film school from probably too many years ago that I don't even want to <laughs> look into the number. But thanks so much, Martin, for coming on the show. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here.
0: Mm-hmm. I'd love for you to tell the listeners a bit about your work in film, what you're working on right now, and kind of how you got into cinema. Because, you know, seeing as we've known each other for a very long time, I know that you got into film quite young. And then I'll get into, you know, how you got into Cassavetes and in the first film you saw. Sure.
1: Um. Honestly, most of my work is in sound editing right now but uh i love writing i have a regular writing group um mm-hmm. i'm always working on both fiction and also i like writing articles about film uh, earlier this year i had a big three-part series on the the good the bad and the ugly of the entire history nice. of king kong i have a new series that should be coming out fairly soon it's all written it's just being um edited for the pink smoke which is about architecture and science fiction and i about some interesting stuff like thx 1138 and uh last and first Men. so that should be pretty exciting and something for people to look forward to i guess yeah i've always been interested in film and filmmaking and um yeah it's it's just been a giant part of my life uh Mm -hmm. almost as long as as i've had any kind of like artistic awareness or interest it's it's just one of those things that uh It's a part of me. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. I feel that pretty much the same on that (laughs) wavelength there. Do you kind of recall what the first Cassavetes film was that you saw and why it was that you wanted to watch more of his stuff and how his work has affected you?
1: Sure. I think, actually, I'm pretty sure the first Cassavetes film I watched was Killing of a Chinese Bookie around the time Mm -hmm. that we met because I rented it from Mm -hmm. the York University Library. Honestly, I... I didn't like it at first. I don't know what I was expecting. I thought it was going to be like a Mean Streets kind of mm-hmm. 70s crime movie. And it's not that. Now, of course, i come around on it. I was just an idiot back then. And I was like, why isn't this <laughs> no. Michael Ban's Thief? You know? <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> you know, so that wasn't necessarily the best foot to get off on. But uh, I think I just worked my way through that Criterion DVD set that uh, the York University had where you had to like rent the disc. Yeah. And you had a couple hours to go and watch the movie and bring it back. And I think over a couple of weeks, I worked my way through that whole thing. And the film we're going to be talking about is the one that really kind of made me fall in love with Casavetes mm-hmm. as a filmmaker. And um, I don't know, it might be my favorite. I think Casavetes is one of those filmmakers where like, every film, you kind of feel like once you finish watching it, you go, oh, that's my favorite. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like I was watching um, Minnie Moskowitz's Last week, also, and I'm like, oh, clearly this is his best film. And then I watched yeah. uh, Woman Under the Influence, and I'm like, oh no, this movie completely wrecked me. This is his best film. <laughs> but, uh, you yeah, you know, I I think um, not only do I love him as a filmmaker, I, like I also really appreciate him as a role model, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. You know, as an independent filmmaker, as somebody who was interested in making films that could not be made in the Hollywood mm-hmm. system. Like I think this past year it's been kind of a weird year as far as some of the conversations about filmmakers selling out. Like it, yeah. it seems to have come up a lot. I know there was a big conversation about Greta Gerwig, who's made the biggest film of the year, because I mean, at one time she was kind of like queen of mumblecore. She wasn't directing, but um, like, I, you know, there was a time when like Francis Ha was considered like her selling out, <laughs> which yeah, is, is kind of ridiculous uh, to, to think about, but, you know, it sort of made me wonder like, you know, I don't feel like Greta Gerwig ever really changed in in what her interests are. It just kind of kept growing. And, mm-hmm. you know, it made me wonder if like, oh, like, you know, was she always kind of conformist? It's just the scale has changed, which I don't think is necessarily a bad thing. Like, I think mm-hmm. obviously like Barbie's pound for pound, the most entertaining film I've seen this year. <laughs> you know, it does make me think like, you know, are a lot of independent filmmakers only working independently as a stepping stone to, you know, make the next, uh, big Hollywood and film, if that's just their entry point into making Hollywood studio films, if, you know, you, you hear people talk about like, oh, you know, I'm making this film, but I, you know, I'd really love to work on a new star Wars movie or, you know, work Mm -hmm. on this or that. And you kind of wonder if, you know, where, where are the people who want to be the next Casabettis I think like that was kind of on my mind a lot this year. And, you know, not to say that every filmmaker Needs to be that, or should want to be that. I mean, one film I really liked this past year was the the uh, live action Peter Pan remake, <laughs> the, the Peter Pan and Wendy by David Lowry, who's a filmmaker. Oh, okay. Like, it's very clearly like a like a you know one for me, one for them. And mm-hmm. you know, I was sort of thinking back. I'm like, oh, you know, like his his Pete's Dragon remake and this Peter Pan remake. I, like, I like these, and I don't have to think about them as as art yeah. <laughs> so like I, I feel like I was a lot more generous to those movies his his sellout movies mm-hmm. than it was to like a ghost story you know I'm like oh yeah. I, I'd much rather get a new Peter Pan from him than another ghost story which is maybe I, I don't know if that's a, a cruel thing to say or not but you know I do like appreciate filmmakers who refuse to work in that Hollywood system or. Or just can't. I mean, like, there's some filmmakers. I mean, I like uh, Nicholas winning reference movies quite a bit. And I feel like he's somebody Mm -hmm. who just perpetually shoots himself in the foot whenever he's had an opportunity to sell out. Like, you know, I'm thinking like, oh, after Drive, he could have just kind of remade that film for forever. Basically, in Hollywood, he could have just kept doing that. And he follows it up with Only God Forgives, which like, you know. It's a film I actually really like, but like what a shoot yourself in the foot career wise kind of a movie. Yeah. And, um, you know, I I feel like, I mean, he, he's a little bit of a strange guy, but he's just somebody who seems like he can't sell out. You know, I had a chance to ask him a question once about, um, at a QA, I asked him about his Logan's Run remake, which fell apart. Oh, okay. And he was like, I love the f- original so much that I thought by like remaking it, I could like insert myself into the original mm-hmm. somehow, which he realized was like a very kind of uncreatively unhealthy way to approach it. And yeah. um I don't know. I, I respect that. If somebody just like can't mm-hmm. <laughs> can't make something that's not art, you know, I mean you gotta you gotta respect that, I think. Even if the film itself is not necessarily that good. I I think so anyway. <laughs> you know, like um did you see that that last Matrix movie? No. The Matrix Resurrections? No. I thought the film was awful, but I completely respected <laughs> okay. what Lana Wachowski was doing, where it feels like a real like, okay, this movie, this doesn't belong to the fans, just d- doesn't yeah. belong to the studio. This is my creation and I'll burn it to the ground if I want to. <laughs> like, you know, I'm like, wow, like I really gotta respect that.
0: Yeah. You know,
1: cool. I mean that that's like a world away from Cassavettis but you know, I, I don't know. I, I think it's it's worth considering, you know, which filmmakers are artists and which ones are interested in just, you know, the commercial aspects of film. And I know like mm-hmm. Kevin himself was somebody who like hated the term a tour and it's yeah. just like, I'm you know, I'm a filmmaker and it's, it's just between me and the actors and all that stuff. And it's collaborative. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. I, I think of him as, as not just an interesting filmmaker, but a, a role model, you know?
0: I mean, I agree. It's basically every, everything you said there. I agree with, I don't know who, could be sort of on the same wavelength as Casavetti's because i guess it's also a money issue right things are different where he was also an actor he could fund ish his own movies with his friends salaries also
1: like mortgaged his house and
0: basically and and like doing the research for this month on his stuff i already knew he kind of had a struggle but didn't realize oh it was like every movie he had to struggle with and then yeah you look at you know him now and he's he's filmed to a lot of people and it's in it's wild that during his tenure on you know earth working it wasn't that way because the way we view him is not that way i'm gonna read off a couple quick fun facts because i don't want to take too much time on the facts and get into the movie we get a couple cameos in the final scenes after the play is done for opening night but peter fox seymour cassell and Peter Bogdanovich and I'd completely forgotten Bogdanovich was in it and I I was looking and I was like is that him because he's not wearing the glasses (laughs) so it took me a couple seconds to catch on to the fact that it was him but love that scene with him
1: I mean, I feel like it's so important that it's him at the end because it's mm-hmm. Peter Bogdanovich saying like, oh, I want to make a film with you. You know, like that's not all of Cassavetes films end on a on a happy note. No. And I feel like th- this one does and it feels very earned. And I, mm-hmm. I just really like that. I, I think that's kind of the perfect note to end on with. It, it does require that, you know, who Peter Bogdanovich is. Yeah. But <laughs> I, I think that's perfect. Like, I love that.
0: Same. I thought it was very sweet. The last time I saw it was definitely pre-pandemic, the royal cinema in toronto they used to play movies had it on so i watched it there I, you know what
1: i think i was at that screening
0: oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. oh wow I, I saw it at there the royal
1: it I, I think there was something weird about the distribution of, for it for a while like i had a friend who worked in um rep cinema and i think he said that for whatever reason opening night was one that was always kind of hard to get so i oh. like i lucked out that i got to see it on the big screen maybe that's changed since but um
0: Both the mothers, uh, Jenna Rollins and John Cassavetes, appear in the film. If you've seen something like A Woman Under the Influence, you'll recognize them as playing their mothers in that film. So it's always fun. I always love, I I love Lady, but I think I love Catherine even more. (laughs) Catherine Cassavetes, because she's always so abrasive. And I love that energy from her. The last quick point was that Cassavetes had a huge problem getting the film distributed in the state when it did get released it was very limited and it had a very poor performance at the box office once he passed away in early 89 the film was then acquired in 91 by a major american distributor for re-release so i think that's why it got kind of a resurgence in that time and it's one of the bigger ones that people talk about when they're discussing his body of work so if you're ready to get into opening night i am one of the first points I wanted to chat about was that the fact that this is it's essentially a showbiz movie. We're not talking about films, but we're talking about the stage. We're getting kind of into the nitty gritty of actors and directors, crew, and what they had to do with behind the scenes before this play even gets to be seen by people. But it's not just about that because we go into Myrtle's struggles also that very much involve her as an actor but she's going through something as well so it's not just we're not always in the theater the the play that they're putting on is called the second woman it's written by Sarah Good in the film who's played by Joan Blondell, and the woman that she writes is an older woman and an older woman than Myrtle actually is in the film and Myrtle's having an issue with kind of relating to this woman as yourself who is a writer filmmaker and i'm sure you've dealt with actors i'm kind of wondering how you feel about her relationship with sarah specifically myrtle and sarah and the fact that sarah's written a script <laughs> myrtle's like yeah fuck that i'm gonna do my own thing and they're fighting and for me i can kind of see both sides i maybe sympathize a little bit more with sarah but how do you feel about that dynamic as it relates to this film and maybe your own work
1: i mean it's tough when you've, from the perspective of a writer, when you've written something and you feel like maybe the actors just being stubborn. <laughs> but uh, mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I can also understand the actor perspective of you know sometimes you understand a character better than the writer does. Like it's it's mm-hmm. true. It, it happens sometimes, not always, but you know if you're living it, you can understand when something feels false. I mean, I thought it was really interesting on the um, on the DVD. There's like a behind the scenes interview conversation between jenna rollins and bangazara and he sort of mentions like oh you know is the is the character of myrtle obsessed with age and jenna rollins like you know no the the writer's obsessed with age and uh, aging and it's kind of interesting because that character myrtle she feels a little bit caught between getting older and on one side you have uh, joan blundell who is like this incredible beauty incredible actress i was watching Mm -hmm. her in a film from 1931 the other day and you know it was really kind of striking to see her in that and also in this at the same time basically and Mm -hmm. you know and she's still such a powerful actress where she she just gives you that look and um, it, it carries so much but you know you have that on one end and then you have this young woman who's maybe entirely imagined by Myrtle who kind of represents the death of youth and in a lot of ways it feels like she's caught in between those two and she's trying to find some truth in material that is maybe not apparent and mm-hmm. in order to achieve that she has to go through this process. You know, the film does play with it a little bit where okay is she is she losing her mind? Is this yeah. just part of her process? Or I, I think you know the way I take it is okay losing her mind a little bit is part of the process. Yeah. But um you know I, I think it's incredible to see her searching for some kind of truth by facing this death of youth in her own imaginings. I I think it's incredible to see that actor process brought to life because honestly, sometimes dealing with actors... For me, it can feel a little bit like dealing with another species.
0: You know, (laughs) I
1: I don't always feel like I know what to say. Like for me, it's it's much easier to work with non-professional actors because Mm -hmm. I feel like okay, like then my job's easy. All I have to do is get them to relax in front of the camera, and um, Mm -hmm. I I think that's one reason why in the past couple of years I've done a lot more documentary work, where Mm -hmm. it's basically that, where it's a matter of getting people comfortable in front of the camera, and. um, I worked on a documentary about the Cloche area where um mm-hmm. a lot of paintings were done a, a couple of years mm-hmm. ago. And two of the people interviewed, they were so stiff when I tried to interview yeah. them. It was like, oh, like this isn't gonna work at all. You know, they're very like almost robotic. And then, you know, I started I just picked up the camera, I I took it off the tripod and I was holding it and you know, asked questions about like, oh, you know, can you extend the camera? And I'm not even sure if they realized like the camera was still rolling. Mm-hmm. And you know, the stuff I got from that was so much better because they were relaxed. And Cassavetti's worked a lot with non professional actors as much as he worked with professional actors, and he was always very good at I think getting them relaxed in front of the camera. Um, and for me, it was funny the um, the big guy in the play within a play. Uh, the guy's name is John Twell, I think. You know, they mentioned, oh, he, like he wasn't a professional actor; he was a teamster. Oh, wow. You know, and it, it's funny to get, you know, a non actor to play an actor. I, I don't yeah. know what that says. But he's he's great in that. And I think he is, <laughs> you know, Cassavetes, one of the things that I, I really like about his approach to dealing with actors is it seems like he was really great at establishing a, a level of comfort, a level of intimacy where actors could explore things and people could be themselves. And, you know, I think like a lot of great actors, what's kind of great about them is they're not really acting, you know, they're they're mm-hmm. discovering something, they're exploring something, they're not necessarily putting on a performance, you know, and yep. I remember reading this interview with Linda Bantz, where she talked about, like, why she got out of acting. And she said, like, I never really felt like I was acting, you know, I felt mm-hmm. like I was just being myself, you know, I yeah. almost felt like a, you know, imposter or something like that. But I think like, oh, no, that's that was what was so great about her. But, you know, I feel a little bit like that looking at some of the actors in his films where it feels like they're not acting. I don't think they are. And, you know, even if they are performing, acting, Cassavetes makes it real. They make it real, you know, and there's no false notes. I I guess that's what I'm trying to say with all this. Mm -hmm. that acting, non-acting, it's kind of a, uh, you know, non-distinction. But like, I remember Ben Gazzara in that uh, interview clip I mentioned talking about the way that Cassavetes operated the camera. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he said it was like, you know, another person doing the scene, basically. You're in it with them. The camera was in it with them. He talked about the scene where he lays down on the bed and Cassavetes goes over his face and, you know, mm. he kind of equated it to like yeah. a lovemaking scene or, you know, mm-hmm. some, something very intimate with the camera. And I don't know if you want to transition into talking about some of the camera work, but I feel like that that's very connected to the performances. And mm-hmm. I, I know I kind of got away from the, the question about, yeah. <laughs> about uh, the, the writing and the acting, but it, it definitely feels important as far as how these actors come across as authentic and about finding yes. the the truth. You know, I mean, there's that really incredible line where <laughs> Jenna Rollins says, you know, Oh, the, what does she say? I seem to have lost the reality of the reality. Right. Yeah. You know, I feel like it, maybe you have to lose your, your sense of reality to find some kind of truth. Sometimes I kind of feel like that's the, the trajectory this takes. And you know, if you're from, if you're looking at it from the point of view of a writer or for somebody who's trying to stage this, or mm-hmm. somebody who's looking from the outside at her process, it looks like, you know, it looks like a woman under the influence. <laughs> it looks yeah. like, you know, somebody maybe losing her mind, but, you know, I absolutely love, you know, when she shows up drunk at the end and everything just kind of snaps together and falls into place in this absolutely incredible way. And it's, it's really exciting to watch. I feel like I really love the play within a play parts because you're enjoying yeah. it on two levels. You're kind of enjoying them as performers and you're enjoying, you know, the performance of the performance. It it works like that. You're, I love all those shots of the audience reacting to them and seeing how kind of in tune they are with each other and playing off of each other. Um, you know, it's, it's really incredible to see. And it's, it's exciting. Like it's I don't know. I, I think if you tell somebody like, oh, it's a movie about putting on a play, they might picture something that's yeah maybe dry or maybe um stagy. Like, you know, it's sort of a mm-hmm. it's sort of a curse word when you're talking about films being like, oh, it's stagey. But you know, I, I think like from Cassavetti's point of view, it's like, oh what you know, what a cinematic subject the stage is. And I, I absolutely love that.
0: I think so too. And there's a couple of things you said I wanted to touch upon before. Because I definitely want to talk about the camera work. I think one, it helps that he's also an actor, but I think he's just someone who is fascinated by people. And yes, I kind of view him in the same vein as someone like a an Anya Varda, who is also fascinated with people and who's done fiction and documentary. And you were talking about documentary that you're working on, and the reason why hers works so much is because she's able to just talk to them like they're human beings, like. When you're watching these people talk, it feels like they're talking to a friend. And I think that's what Cassavetes gets out of his actors too, right? That's why everyone thinks all of his stuff is improvised, but it's actually just heavily scripted. And when you read about them, all the actors are like, no, we were reading a script. Yeah. You might deviate here and there, but most of it is scripted. It's just the comfort level when you're watching these people act. And I definitely don't think they're performing, they're acting, which might seem like it's the same thing but i don't think it is at all because there's some people who are putting on a performance there's some people who are acting and even something like jenna's you know in this film or even in any of the films that she did with his they are grandiose but you never feel like she isn't this person in that moment so it's so difficult to do that
1: i I might have been using performance and acting backwards but i I completely agree with what you're saying and i think earlier when i talked about trying to make films that couldn't be made in the Hollywood system. Mm-hmm. I think you tell that to some people and they interpret that as like, oh, it's, it's you know, the film's going to be way too violent for Hollywood or, you know, whatever, yeah. but, you know, it's going to have some extreme content. And I think really like, you know, if you're talking about Cassavetes, it's like these films couldn't exist in the Hollywood system because he thinks that, you know, there's nothing more interesting than regular people, mm-hmm. which is so kind of in opposition to the typical kind of Hollywood film. You know, it's based on stars and spectacle. And it's, mm-hmm. it's like these films couldn't, exist in that in that system and i think a lot of actors turned director there are certain characteristics that you see pop up like there's a tendency towards the climax of the films being based around something performative or something very grandiose you know well crying people screaming and yelling yeah. and i think like to some degree that's also true of cassavetes i mean there's obviously exceptions but i think like a lot of actors turn director you see those traits but i think you're absolutely right that what the difference is is he can go that big and it doesn't feel false it feels still rooted in truth and it's not this kind of big performative thing um i, I think like you know if you watch his films you know you can have scenes of people kind of yelling or screaming or being Mm -hmm. borderline blackout drunk. And, you know, yeah, the drama is rooted in something that's performance based, but, um, Mm -hmm. you know, it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel false in the way that I think some actors turn director struggle with, you know, I I think like, I don't want to badmouth anybody, but like, I I think if you look (laughs) out for that stuff, you, you can definitely notice it in a lot of movies where it's like, okay, this, this actor's idea of drama is two people screaming at each other. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's, they have a hard time with the stuff that's a little bit more under the surface.
0: I mean, he was lucky to have this repertoire of actors under his belt who they all were on the same page. And I think what makes this movie so compelling that it's not just about them as actors, we get their home lives involved as well. We get to understand them a bit more. And the fact that they are a human being who just, this is their job too, but they have some shit going on. But I'd love to talk about the camera work in this because he's never been like a flashy camera person, essentially. And he doesn't often work with cinematographers. There is one in this film, but usually he does it himself. There's a couple scenes that involve Jenna specifically when she's on stage and having a hard time, whether it's her having a hard time with grasping the fact that she's going to have to be hit over and over again. You know, night after night or the camera just shooting her from below and she's kind of like looming over and it's like black behind her. There's just some scenes that are just so beautiful to watch. And sometimes you get up in their face and you're uncomfortable because they're having a hard time and you can't get away from it. So if you want to talk about your feelings on the camera work in this film.
1: I think it's in the, the Criterion booklet. Somebody compares him to Carl Theodore Dreyer and mm. You know, I I can really feel that when you have those, like, close-ups on the face. And I think Jenna Rollins said that he was after, like, his idea of good cinematography is if you felt like you could reach out and know what somebody's skin would feel like. (laughs) Which, you know, I I feel that a lot watching this film where there's something very textural about uh, the photography. But it's funny, like you say, you know, he's not a flashy um, cinematographer or, you know, image creator. Like, I Mm -hmm. think on one hand that's true, but also... You know, if you're on a film set and you say, like, oh, this shot should be a little bit more Cassavetes, people instantly know what that means.
0: Yeah. <laughs> you
1: know, handheld, yeah. close, like, you know, that level of intimacy. But it's also really hard to replicate that. And I think a big part of that is because of that connection with the actors, you know, where he's so mm-hmm. comfortable and intimate with these people that, again, if it's like another participant in the scene where he's very in tune with where they're going to look, where they're going to move, and he just seems to naturally pick up on that in a way that, I think a lot of imitators struggle with, you know, I think he's not just reacting to the spontaneity. He's, he's a part of it and he kind of knows how to respond. So you get this sort of dance with some of the camera movement that looks completely kind of rough on spontaneous, but I don't know. It's really beautiful and really lets you feel connected to the, the characters in a way that I think a lot of people who, just do the handheld kind of close-up camera work struggle with you know it's it's hard to replicate that if you don't have that level of intimacy with the performers
0: i agree i think there's some some shots you get to that you probably they probably weren't setting up for that but he'll catch an actor looking a certain way like even yeah. some i love Ben Gazzara, and i love him in Casavetti's films specifically because he always kind of has that murky look on his face because he's technically always the one in charge when he's in his films and there's a couple shots that flash over to him and just the look on his face and i'm like i'm assuming that that probably wasn't planned to go over and have that shot on him but he was like well i gotta look at him right you gotta look at him because he's just so interesting to look at so it's just that and just knowing what everyone has to offer down to someone who was in one scene he just brings out kind of the best and the most personal aspects of everyone and their performances. Because even a lot of the actors he's working with, he's worked over and over again. And you might be like, oh, Peter Falk is kind of always the same in movies. We cast him in these movies or Cassell is always the same. But it's like, no, he knows what they have to offer. And why not utilize those elements in the character they're playing? So mm-hmm. it's interesting because I think that's the job of a director is to yeah. relate to your actors. I know it's difficult, but it should be that because that's you're directing them. So before we kind of get into her and the ghost of the the woman who was killed, talk about her relationship to alcohol and her addiction there. Some people I'm reading kind of view it as it's heightened due to this play and her not being able to handle the age aspect or this other woman who's haunting her. But we kind of are set up to know that she has had this issue. It's been there People just accept it because she's the talent, you know. She still shows up and does her job, and we see that literally to the end, where she can barely stand up and still puts on the performance of a lifetime at the end. Yeah. And the way that the film treats her alcoholism and, and the the men surrounding her, and the way they either judge or use her for as it relates to that addiction, is interesting because we've got three men, we've got. Manny, who's Ben Kisara, the director. We've got Maurice, who's Cassavetes, plays kind of a, I guess, her sometime lover. They've had hi- history. And to some extent, we also have David, who's Paul Stewart, who I do want to shout out because I love him. And it's so nice seeing actors that you see in older films and see what they were doing uh, later on in their career. But we have David, who is kind of like a father figure, but not really, too, because there's something else going on there. So how do you feel about using alcohol as kind of a crutch in this film? Because it's obviously something he that comes up a lot in his films, basically in almost every film. And it's also a part of his life, too.
1: I mean, it's tough for me. Like, I don't drink at all. So I'm Mm -hmm. coming at this like as a complete outsider. But my take on this character on Myrtle is that I don't think what she's doing is falling into an alcoholic addictive pattern i think she's really pursuing something that like it does flirt with self-destructive behavior and you do see Mm -hmm. some actors struggle with that and it's it's one of those things where like you know i mean not just actors all kinds of creative people you Mm -hmm. wonder you know are they are they self-destructive because they're creative or are they creative because they're self-destructive um yeah to me it feels like myrtle it's part of her process to get there, to hit that rock bottom. I mean, just coincidentally, I was, um, I mean, it was talking about The Exorcist, the the first movie a couple of weeks ago, Mm -hmm. going through all the special features. And in one of the making of documentaries, there's a really great conversation with um, Mercedes McCambridge, who does the the voice of the devil in that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And she talked about, uh, like, she was somebody who had struggled with alcoholism a lot in her life. And, you know, she, I guess when she was cast to do that, voice I think she said she she asked her priest like for permission to drink again because she thought like that's that's where she needed to go she needed to mm-hmm drink again to like find that hatefulness that that place in her that was you know very dark and Mm -hmm. you know it's not exactly the same with this character but it's it's a little bit like that i think where she she needs to find that place which is maybe a little bit out of reach without the alcohol i mean it's so it's so like nerve-wracking when she shows up to the opening night at the end and yeah she's she's like ready to fall over and oh yeah theater it's i'm sure much worse than film because it's mm-hmm. all happening live and it's spontaneous and things can go really wrong uh, yep. you know so like it's it's nerve-wracking to watch her in that state and then just to see how it all kind of comes together and how it all works i think at that end point you can appreciate where she was going with all this stuff that to you know maybe to the men in her life looks like mm-hmm. her falling into this pattern of self-destructive behavior or you know to some of the other people the other characters in the story it looks like her losing it you know mm-hmm. just coincidentally also like I, I was watching um in this I was like looking at Zora Lambert and I was like like I saw her something recently what did I see her in? what did I see her in and I realized it was Exorcist three oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't I, I had exorcist on the brain uh, <laughs> the past uh, two weeks I guess
0: that's fun I think that's an interesting point of I don't think that she's self-destructive i think it's very much she needs to get to a place especially because she's so you know concerned at the fact that she cannot relate to this woman for me i i did drink i don't know that i've ever been falling down drunk like that and the whole time i just was like she's gonna vomit on stage like how is she not sick to her stomach <laughs> you know throwing up everywhere but it's Interesting, even the relationship with Manny when she does finally show up to the opening night. Yeah, she's falling down drunk and he's yelling at her to get up and walk to her dressing room because he knows that she can do it. He wants to make her do it, but from the outside, and all the people in the film on the outside who are coming, it, it looks in.
1: like a disaster. Like, it's oh,
0: how could you do this to this woman? Like, literally yeah. help her. And he's yelling at people, Do not touch her. How do you feel about that scene? Because I can see where he's coming from. It seems incredibly harsh to do that, but sometimes... Uh, You know, she showed up. She knew she had to do a job, and she kind of needed that kick in the ass.
1: I think you're right. It looks it looks rough from the outside, but also, like you said, there's something in between them that's hard to fully understand if you're outside of that. And if you know if you know each other, sometimes you know which buttons to push and what the other person's threshold is for things. And you know, sometimes that can be really hard because they they know exactly how to get under your skin. But um, and you know, that can go both ways. I think he understands what she's doing in that moment, and. If they didn't let her go on stage, can you imagine you know it would she would feel like it was all a waste going to this place yeah. to, you know, make this character authentic and and then you know if, if she wasn't allowed on stage it would be complete disaster for her. In her own way, she's being as professional as um, have you seen Guilty by Suspicion with Robert De Niro about the McCarthy? No, era?
0: that's been on my list for so long.
1: There's like a scene where like, you know, the set's a complete disaster and he comes in and just like immediately kind of takes control and he's like, Mm -hmm. all right, you do this. He just like snaps, like after being kind of like, you know, through the wringer, just snaps into action. And I don't know, like, I I think like, you know, there's a director version of that. There's an actor version of that Mm -hmm. where you understand... They're being a professional, actually. Like it's, and sometimes that means giving them a certain amount of distance to get to where they need to go because, like, you know, I'm not somebody who can cry on command. I don't know what that
0: takes. Yeah.
1: <laughs> you know, whatever it is, it's like, well, you know, I don't honestly, for myself, I don't completely understand it. I don't get it. Mm-hmm. I'm not somebody who can use my own emotions in that way. So, you know, I, I respect the people who can, and try to give them that distance so that they can do whatever they mm-hmm. they need to get there, even if it looks, you know, to some degree or another, like a little bit crazy. <laughs> if, if it well, yeah, seems that way. You know, it's like, well, you know, that's that's why they're they're the professional actor, and I'm I'm not. You know,
0: <laughs> exactly. I think it's just the trusting uh, yeah. that people can do their jobs.
1: I mean, maybe some people use that as an excuse to be an asshole. Like, everyone's heard stories about like Jared Leto or, you know, whoever. But uh, I mean, sometimes I feel like some of these method actors doing the method all the time is the real performance. I forget who, I think it was Mm -hmm. Robert Pattinson who made some kind of crack about like, you know, nobody's ever a method actor when they have to play like a really nice person, you know? Yeah. (laughs) It's always (laughs) like playing these like asshole characters. But
0: that's so um, true. as you were talking about that it came up in my head. I recently watched abel Ferrara's Dangerous Game. Oh, which I didn't oh yeah. I didn't love, but I appreciate it. And I think the director in that, played by Harvey Keitel, is dealing with an yeah. actor who is just like a human mess. But yeah. so he's giving the performance that he needs to give because his character is abrasive and he's like, Okay, I cannot handle you as a person, but I need you to channel that into <laughs> yeah. this role because it's giving me the best material. So it's like the brink of I can trust you and sometimes it's a little bit selfish of being like, well, this is going to get me what I need. I don't know that Cassavetes was like that. I think no. he was very poor like, I want everyone to feel happy and safe with their performances wherever they need to go.
1: But I think like sometimes there is that element of like, I know you can go a little bit further. I'm going to push you. You know, it doesn't Mm -hmm. necessarily have to, I mean, like some, some directors take that much further than they should, but I, I think like there is an element of, again, I'm thinking about The Exorcist and there's like those horror stories about like William Friedkin yeah. You know, slapping a priest to get him to like shake on camera or, you know, firing yeah. guns off or, you know, all that stuff is, is like kind of nuts to me. But I think like, you know, sometimes you do have to push a little bit to get some people out of their, out of their box, you know, even if sometimes pushing doesn't have to mean be being aggressive. Sometimes pushing can just be mm-hmm. like, well, let's get them a little bit more comfortable. Like, I, I don't think some people realize like pushing an actor can sometimes mean like, okay, half the crew get off the set or, yeah. you know, it can be things like that. But um, I feel like Harvey Keitel. Was probably in that position for Abel Ferrara doing like Bad Lieutenant, where you watch that performance and you're like, "Whoa! Like, what? Like, is this even acting? Like, what is this? You know? Yeah. My God. You know, he kind of has to go to some place where it's like, I can't even, can't even wrap my head around like how to, how to create that performance. (laughs) So I I feel like that film was maybe a little bit about, about what was going on there. Maybe
0: that's, that's a wild movie. They're both wild movies. I like Ferrara a lot. If we want to talk about, because Myrtles are essential characters. So yeah. She's who we're going to be talking about the most essentially, but she's dealing with a play. She's dealing with her own battles in life when it comes to plays. And I know someone who goes to plays often. I forgot that people go kind of before and after get to get autographs and so on. So you see a lot of that. There's a fan who is a huge fan of myrtles and she they have that scene where myrtle and manny are in the car about to drive off and the fan is outside in the pouring rain kind of just giving off like kisses to myrtle and myrtle's like come back tomorrow i'll sign go home and you'll be sick and it's it's kind of touching the way that she actually cares about this person she said go home like come back tomorrow i'll, I'll take care of you then but like now's not the time she unfortunately gets hit by a car on the side of the road and dies and it has a deep effect on Myrtle because she sees it happens and she's shocked that the driver just leaves the scene even though it had nothing to do with them essentially but she goes to the funeral the family's like it's weird that you're here why are you here? And then she's now being visited and haunted by the ghost of, I believe her name's Nancy, is the girl's name. We see the conversation she's having, and then they get into an actual battle essentially between the two of them. So how do you feel that we're getting something that seems so real? And now there's kind of the supernatural element to the story that I don't think that you would necessarily anticipate coming from a Cassavetes film or just this film in general. So how do you feel about it, how it was handled?
1: I mean, it's really interesting to interpret it as as a ghost story. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know if I believe in like life after death, but, you know, I've talked to people who have had like ghost stories and I, I could sort of, you know, if I'm being open-minded by that, you know, maybe we leave certain things behind that uh, mm-hmm. aren't totally you know, some footprint of our existence that's maybe not completely understood. But like, it's funny to me, like, two of the ghost stories I've heard from close friends involved like old ladies doing laundry. And we're we're like completely like, it seemed like corporeal to them. Uh, You know, I had a friend, she said she was dating this guy who, you know, she was sleeping over in his basement with him and she woke up in the morning and there's this lady doing laundry. And after he woke up, she was like, Oh, I saw your grandmother like coming to do laundry. And he was like, okay, don't, don't say anything. Come with me. And he brought her to his parents and he's like, tell them what you told me. And she's like, Oh, I, I saw, I guess your grandma. And they are like, see, she saw, him, she saw her too. And, you know, apparently oh, wow. it was like this ghost that they'd been seeing. Uh, so I don't like, may- maybe it could be, I'm, you know, I try to be open-minded about this stuff. Yeah. But one thing I love, you know, if you look at this as a ghost story, is that there's nothing to tip you off that she isn't real, except, you know, through the context of how other characters are reacting to Myrtle's behavior. You know, yeah. I, I think like other film, you know, they, they could have done it like uh Nancy showing up like transparent or they could, you know, yeah. have her showing up like, um, you know, American Werewolf in London or something yeah. like that. Like, you know, that yeah. would be a completely different kind of a movie. But I mean, my, my take is that it's, it's completely in brutal. said, I'm not even sure if the, if the car crash is real, you know, because she's the only one who seems to react to it. I, you know, and like other people talking about this, it's always through the context of like her saying, you know, Oh, you know the girl who died, or the car. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, I I can kind of go back and forth on this to like what extent it's real or not. But in a way, it's it's all real because Myrtle makes it real. Yeah, you know. And again, like we're talking about trying to find the truth in these things. I think you know whether or not Nancy isn't com- is a complete invention or not. I think you know in a way it's like she has to lose Myrtle has to lose her mind a little bit to, <laughs> to get mm-hmm. to this place. And you know when she's talking about like oh I can switch it on or off this girl you know it's just a uh, imagining. I think to get to the place where she needs to be, she she has to not be able to turn that off, you know, and that, yeah. that is kind of where, where she ends up. But I, you know, I I sort of take it all as being a, a sort of psychological manifestation as part of her process. But it's, it's interesting to kind of view it as, as a ghost story in that way. And like, mm-hmm. I've seen some comparisons between this film and um, David Lynch's Mulholland Drive, where it's okay. like, yeah. you know, presumably, mm-hmm. you know, what you're seeing, it's Most of it is like the imaginings of this character who is actually disillusioned with being an actress. Mm -hmm. Uh, But like, you know, everything in opening night, whether it's real or imagined, is treated with the same kind of verisimilitude by Cassavetes. There's no Mm -hmm. like, oh, this is is the imagined scene with the fuzzy quarters around the- Camera lens, you know, <laughs> there's nothing like that, which I, I think is really fantastic because I think you know when you're kind of losing your mind, everything feels as real as everything else. That's the, that's the mm-hmm. problem. It's not that know that you're having some kind of a delusion and. Um, I don't know. Again, like going back to the, the questions about the alcoholism, I, I think for me more than this one, a uh, woman under the influence is the one that gives yeah. me a hard time because like I, you know, I have a family member who's manic bipolar, who's struggling with um, mm-hmm. uh, some addiction issues. And it's like, it's like that where, you know, you, you want to help and you can't. And it's, it's a really, yeah. really hard thing to go through. Um I mean it, that film's a hard watch, no matter what. But, yeah. You know, like th- this most recent watch, I was like, "Oh, this is yeah, this is rough." If you um, have
0: some connection to it, yeah.
1: You know, so I, I think like it's kind of interesting to contrast "Woman Under the Influence" with "Opening Night" because it feels for a minute like you know, oh, is this just going to be the same thing over again, except with a, mm-hmm. with an actress instead of a housewife? And I, I don't think it is. Ultimately, I think things kind of lead in a different direction um, mm-hmm. and a and an optimistic one. I, I think like you can go to these places and and come back is sort of what the film is saying versus a woman under the influence I'm not sure if there's if there's coming back from that yeah not just for Jenna Rowland's character I I should say either like I, I think uh, mm-hmm. she's, she's not the only one in that film who has uh has issues but oh, no. anyway
0: yeah <laughs> <laughs> no um I no, I agree with all all that there's a point that you brought up and a glad you brought up because I wanted to say what I love about the element of Nancy is she real or is she not did she even exist at all does she die is when you get to the fight scene because oddly enough there's a fight scene in this movie but it's not the fight scene that you think it is there's a battle that they they go through cassavetes could have cut to a shot of myrtle just fighting dead air and he doesn't
1: <laughs> like like yeah,
0: yeah we never get that and i that's what i love the most about that is because we're fully on board with the fact that in that moment i'm like there's no way this woman isn't there in that room. Whether the other woman in the room, I believe it was Lady Rollins at that point, or it might have been Sarah at that point was in the room with her and we don't cut to see what their reaction is we're just seeing these two women duke it out essentially but we never not see Nancy we always see them and we see her she's got a bloodied face and she's like on the ground because Riddle beat the shit out of her essentially and I like that he has enough respect for the character to not be like okay so now I had to tell you that it's actually all just in her head Yeah, you know and people are just watching her having that downfall we never I think Even the characters in the film, they're very concerned for her because, you know, they should be. I mean, that that
1: scene where she goes to um, Joan Blundell's character's place and she's just, Mm -hmm. you know, smacking up against the door and against the door frame and stuff like that. It's like pretty harrowing to watch.
0: It is. But I think that they have so much love for her that they never kind of talk down to her and are never demeaning. It's more so like, okay, let's get together here. Because we know what you can do and how can we help you? You know, maybe you should have a meal instead of a whole bottle of whiskey tonight. <laughs> if we kind of track back just quickly to again, the men in the story, we kind of talked a bit about her and Manny, because Zara, uh, whose wife is quite involved in the film as well, she's kind of background. She's very outside of it and she looks, she's essentially a bored wife who
1: she, she's so much fun to watch. Like she that is scene where he's on the phone and she's like rolling around on the bed and like mm-hmm. fake. I mean, talk about like fake fighting herself. She's doing that in, yeah. that, in that scene. So you, I guess you do get a little bit of somebody fighting himself, but <laughs> you do. Uh, yeah. <laughs> she, she's great to watch.
0: She is. And I, I love her performance. And I love that character of her being like, I know what's happening between the two of you. I know that there's something going on, but I I'm here for support. And I think she's just kind of fascinated by the whole thing because it's so far removed from her life. And then you have Maurice, he's played by Cassavetes, and he has this line of being like, I don't view you as a woman anymore. You're the star of the show. I just have a small part. You can't be wasting your time with me. Like, I can't afford to love you because I know yeah. I'm going to get burned.
1: I think because he knows that, again, she's doing it for the role. So if he gets yes. emotionally invested, for real, he knows it's going to burn him. You <laughs> know, He yes. knows it's not. it might be real in the moment, but it won't be real Mm -hmm. long term. So
0: once the show closes, you know, she's, she's gone, essentially.
1: I mean, you see, like, some people don't always get like film sets, people fall in love, people get divorced, Mm -hmm. people make enemies (laughs) for life. Like, it's one of those things where I mean, not not every film set, obviously, but yeah, and I'm sure it's truth theater also but like Mm -hmm. there's some really intense emotions and sometimes you have to have that self-awareness of like okay is this is this for real or is this for the movie?
0: Yeah I do love when Cassavetes casts himself in a film although his character is not that bad in this one but he often plays like quite unlikable character he plays one in this and then the within the play also is an unlikable character just the scene of them practicing the hitting and her just being so mad when she sees him like kind of raise his hand a little too high where it would have been like a harder blow and just the the dynamics between the two of them is really beautiful to watch and Minnie Moskowitz, he's also plays a really nasty character too even in husbands so just the way he's (laughs) kind of like yeah i'll play the bad guy it's fine you don't have to love me.
1: I mean, there's something a little bit self-deprecating about it. I think it might have been it might have been in that interview clip with uh, Jenna Rollins and Biggs where she sort of says he fell out of love with acting as he mm. became more interested in filmmaking. And I think at that point in his career, for Cassavetes, acting was something that he could do to help raise money to go off and make mm-hmm. his films. So I think like I I kind of get it where you know he's fine playing unlikable characters or bad guys, and
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know I I'm not sure. If it's because, like, you don't necessarily have to, I mean, sometimes you have to invest more to make those characters come to mm-hmm. life. But, I mean, in this one, I I sort of feel like, I don't know, there's one or two moments where he's clearly frustrated with working with Myrtle, but I don't yep. feel like he's he's a bad guy. And no. I really love, I mean, some of the best scenes in the movie are just seeing how the two interplay with each other and having their emotions kind of come through in their performances and the little like you know when she goes to shake his hand and flips it back and stuff like mm-hmm. that it's like <laughs> wonderful to watch and supposedly the um the, the stand on one foot shake your foot thing was yeah no the other the other way and she flips it the other way it was uh then improvising but like you know it does kind of feel like two people who are at least comfortable enough with each other to Know how to riff on each other and how to again kind of yes. get on each other's nerves. Like you know, I know what you what you mean, so I'm going to go the opposite way and just see how you react. And mm-hmm. I mean, sometimes interesting acting is going in the direction that somebody's not expecting. So I mm-hmm. I love watching that stuff.
0: Yeah, it, it's it's interesting because I find it to be such a compelling actor. But I think he's often cast as, you know, even outside of his own roles is kind of like the guy you don't trust. It might be also due to Rosemary's Baby, but it's very rare that he gets yeah. cast as like the very sweet man. Like even like, <laughs> have you seen The Fury? The Palma's The yeah, Fury. Yeah. <laughs> that's like, a, that's the performance is like, a part of me wants to say it's my favorite one because it's just so insane. That performance <laughs> in that film specifically, because he was like in his own film and that. It's just so much fun. And it's like, I think he did it right after this.
1: Oh, that's right. They must have been right around the same time. (laughs) I didn't even think about that.
0: Because it was a big enough budget for that movie. But even in like The Tempest, which I don't love, he's not playing the greatest of characters in that. But I just love them being so comfortable with each other. And I can't imagine, you know, I'm not married, but I can't imagine what it would be like to have to work with your spouse so often like they obviously had a bond and it's like something to admire because i feel like most people should like their spouse but it doesn't happen often
1: no it's it's true i mean you really get the feeling that she was his muse you know he Mm -hmm. some of these films like I, i think maybe opening night is the best example of this but it feels like he wants to make this film to showcase her for her to Uh give her something great to do and i I really like that part of the relationship also
0: yeah i think that's interesting actually because i know that for a woman under the influence she asked him to write a role for her and he originally wanted to make that a stage play and she's like this is too harrowing to play night after night so they turn into a film but then you kind of get that in this where this is a character that's too much for her to play and she within the film she has to play it over and over and over again so it's interesting how he was like well i'm still gonna get you to do it <laughs> but just in a different setting
1: i mean in general i like the way that cassavetes approaches women characters and how he's mm-hmm. he seems generally yep. interested in in women in the inner lives of women i, I guess you could say and mm-hmm. like th- there was like a little sub-genre of that in like the 60s 70s that i don't know for some reason kind of disappeared but like mm-hmm. you think like altman's images or movies like that um you can kind of lump this in with but i don't know i I think with cassavetes there's a real sensitivity and like a genuine interest that i'm Mm -hmm. not sure you find in a lot of filmmakers who have movies about women as the main subject or you know even Mm -hmm. in the ones where women aren't like killing of a chinese bookie i still feel like he's he's conscious of that and interested in that
0: oh very much that i was gonna say because it's very rare that it's not a woman who's at the very forefront but then the women who are in that movie they're not just kind of side notes there's depth given to them so it's interesting him being so interested in something like the life of a housewife essentially and how that goes from there so it's just good writing yeah one of the last parts i wanted to talk about was we kind of touched upon the ending of this film and the ending of his other films and how they don't always end on high notes it's weird cuz a woman under the influence there's so much going on up until the the ending but then the end credits scenes is them kind of dressing a table and you as the audience you're just like okay this is just this is not going to continue from here it's going <laughs> to just go but then even like a mini moskowitz it ends with a well apologies to anyone it's not a spoiler it ends with they're married and they're a happy family but then you're like uh, is this gonna last you don't know and it's the yeah. same with this where at the end they had a great performance she's being congratulated she's probably gonna be in a Bogdanovich movie yeah. <laughs> but where does she go from there where does the play go from there because
1: she's Bogdanovich says oh no we lost all our funding yeah <laughs>
0: <laughs> so like how do you feel about the ending do you think it's a hopeful or is it doesn't it matter if it's like you know it's contained it's fine that that night was great it doesn't matter how else, what the next night was like
1: for me one of the reasons why I do take it as a hopeful ending is I think it's saying partly for women actresses that your career is not over when you hit middle age, (laughs) you know, there's still, there's still room for great performances and great roles and maybe even Bogdanovich films. And like, I think, you know, part of that is done through, you know, not just uh, Jenna Rollins, but like, you know, again, giving John Blondell a great role mm-hmm. in this film, I, I think it's you know, it's saying you don't have to be like Nora Desmond. <laughs> so I, yeah. I think like not just in a optimistic sense of what happens to that specific character, but I think it's an optimistic view on its own themes that i i really appreciate that like i i don't know in my head maybe maybe Myrtle goes on and and stars in uh gloria next instead of jenna mm-hmm. rollins you know like yeah. i kind of think you know in, in some ways like her her career is just getting started like she or she's uh maybe not just getting started but h- hitting her stride yeah um, you know you feel like that at the end like oh she's reaching that next level and in some ways you need to let your youth die to achieve that i kind of feel like it's something the film is saying you know mm-hmm. and there's there's a lot to admire about youth and you know it it's this um, it's like this again ghostly presence in the film this daunting thing of this young woman who in my mind the, the character Nancy is is young Myrtle. And, yep. you know, that's not explicitly mm-hmm. stated, but like, she looks a little bit like young. I was gonna and, say uh, she does. Like, in my mind, it's, it's like, you know, she has to kill off her, her youth to move on with her life. And I don't, I, I think like, you know, not even just for artists or creators, I think everyone has to kind of go through that at some point. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for me, it's, it's an optimistic film, because, you know, it says that, well, like, youth isn't everything. And sometimes there are great things that can only be, Be achieved or experienced by leaving that behind. So Mm -hmm. it's optimistic, I I think.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I I could view it like that as well. I think. I agree that I think Nancy's probably just young Myrtle. But oh
1: my when she's talking like, like, and I like sex and she's just yeah. going on like trying to, you know, rub her face and everything that like when you're not a teenager, teenager anymore, you kind of look back and mm-hmm. there are certain things you say like, oh, like, you know, geez, uh, you know, I missed that about myself. But, uh, mm-hmm. you know, there, there are a lot of things that like, personally, I'm I'm happier now and I feel like more satisfied with who I am now than when I was a teenager. And, you know, I I think like there's something like unhealthy about trying to perpetually keep that childhood alive. And, um, you know, eventually you run into the point where, you know, it it holds you back more than Mm -hmm. more than anything. I mean, like, you know, it's good to keep certain things, you know, childlike sense of wonder, but, you know, I mean, it's, it's been a subject that a lot of people have tried to address uh, specifically with our generation, how like Mm -hmm. a lot of people our age seem to have not, grown up and the films yeah. you know a lot of people our age watch are not films for <laughs> adults and yeah. you know and, and I think a lot of people have kind of struggled with this and you see a lot of people our age who are kind of hitting that point now where it's like oh shit I'm not a kid anymore what 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 happens now <laughs> so yeah I don't know maybe, maybe this is a good film for that I could be I don't know
0: yeah I think so I think so too and I agree it's definitely a generational thing too of even something like holding on to like type of music that I listen to is all I'm like oh I mean I listen to older stuff too but a lot of it would be like I haven't graduated past like 2005. Oh, 2007. It took me way too long to realize I
1: don't actually like rock music. So I was like yeah. Wait, do I even like
0: this? <laughs> like, <laughs> but it's an interesting point that you bring up of some actors. Right, and directors get like a new life once they hit a certain age, a new yeah. audience starts to see them. It's more often not male actors will get that. It's been like, oh, I forgot. Yeah. Didn't realize you were acting from like, you know, they, they disappear for like now. 30
1: years and then they come back yeah. and they have this uh, whole other career. Or I mean, you know, filmmakers or like mm-hmm. other other careers, too. So I, I've got this whole theory going with my friend Christopher Funderburg about how some filmmakers have like a second first film where they kind of reach, reach the end point of like a certain focus of their career and then they have to kind of go and reinvent themselves and it's usually this like awkward weird film where it's like yeah. they, have to, they have to re think who they are as a filmmaker so like um you know i, I always think like a, my go-to example is uh the kurosawa film dodeska den where you know he's okay. like the first part of his career culminates in red beard and it's like okay that kind of says mm-hmm. everything about what he was saying about you know humanity and all those themes mm-hmm. in the first part of his career and then he goes off and makes dodeska den and it's like like oh what is this <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, you know and um I mean, I always think like, you know, if Kurosawa had had managed to kill himself after that film, uh, like he attempted, we would all say like, oh, he was the great filmmaker who had that like one weird kind of bad one at the end. But then, you know, you look at it in context of where he goes with like, Dersu Ursula and Kagabusha and Ran and Dreams. And it's like, oh, okay, it fits into this other second part of his career. So for me, that's just one example I think of. But I I think like sometimes you do hit a point in your life where you have to reinvent yourself. Otherwise, you're just repeating yourself. And I, I think it's probably true of actors it's probably mm-hmm. true of a lot of things where it, it's awkward to like go off and it's kind of painful and maybe embarrassing to like reinvent yourself and grow and you know usually the first mm-hmm. the first attempts at that are not are not great you know <laughs> like very, yeah. very few people kind of like you know hit a home run out of the gate with that kind of thing but you know sometimes it's necessary to grow as an artist or grow as a person you know and for me this film like a uh, I like how it captures that feeling of like, how do you achieve some kind of a breakthrough? And how do you mm-hmm. how do you get past who you were and move forward with your life? I, I think it's like a big part of this film.
0: Yeah, because she's very concerned with, there's a line that she says, once the audience accepts you as something, that's all you can play. And she's yeah. afraid of being accepted as an older woman. But it's like, but you are now getting into an older woman territory. And you see it a lot, even now still, of... Older yeah. actors who are not getting jobs, no one wants to hire them. But they'll show up in horror films because that's people who will hire yeah. them. And you see someone like, even if we're gonna go like, like Betty Barbara Davis, Cranston. Joan Crawford. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> like those. those Let, let's go with your <laughs> but, Well, yeah. we can say Barbara Cranston too. But I was thinking of you know Betty Davis and Joan Crawford yeah, yeah. that they do whatever happened to Baby Jane. They get a few roles after that, but then they're essentially the end of their career was in like weird horror movies because, and then they're kind of viewed from the audience at that time as just kind of being these old, you know.
1: I mean, it, it happens like fairly if you if you look like in comparison to a lot of male actors, it's like you see a lot of actresses hit like their 40s and they're getting the mom role. They're playing the the yep. nurse in quotes, the mom. I mean, like mm-hmm. I, I sort of realized like I was getting older when like a lot of my my like actress crushes started showing up in these types of roles. Like mm-hmm. I was like, wait, what's Winona Ryder doing playing like the mom character? Oh, yeah. I'm like, oh, I, I guess I'm getting old. <laughs> but, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, but like it, it's very unfair if you look at that in comparison to like, you know, a lot of male actors who like sometimes get the, the best written material and best characters when they're at that same age. And, yes. you know, of course, you know, you have your, you know, your grand dame actresses and it's maybe a little bit better now than it used to be. I'm mm-hmm. still like, I still don't think it's, it's great, but, you know, we, we've got like our Isabelle Hubert's and people like yep. that who are, oh yeah you know, getting these phenomenal characters and
0: you have to be european essentially. It, it helps. <laughs> it <laughs> it totally helps to be helps. european, especially french, <laughs> to just feel like given these legit roles. Yeah. Uh, I definitely think it's better. It's not where it should be, but it's good to know that it is getting better. It's just slow getting there. Are there any other additional points on the film itself that we haven't covered that you want to chat about?
1: I'm not sure. I feel like we covered a lot. Um Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know is there, is there anything i didn't mention that you think i should have
0: mentioned i think i think we covered it like yeah, there's no point in like, about this. going you know digging into like let's talk about this one minute in the movie but yeah. <laughs> i think we covered all the points that you know need to be covered so if you're ready we can get into the last segment of the show which is sure. end credits so the first question is and we kind of touched upon it at the top is if someone comes up to you and says hey martin i've never seen a cassavetes films where should i start what film are you recommending to them and why i know it's dependent on the person but yeah generally
1: i I would say it probably depends like Mm -hmm. this is probably a pretty pretty good one to recommend as an early Mm -hmm. cassavetes to people this is what got me hooked i think if if i'm talking to somebody who's not as into film i might recommend gloria just because like,
0: mm, yeah. you
1: know, I, I think, you know, you're, you're going to enjoy that no matter who you are. Um, yeah. <laughs> but you know, if you're somebody who's into film and theater and interested in that kind of making up side of it opening night is a really great one to get Mm -hmm. into Cassavetes and you know if if you're like me who's just interested in how stuff's made and how how actors go through their processes and how things come together I I think this is a this is a fantastic film
0: I think it shows everything that Cassavetes has to offer too which is important on the first one yeah
1: killing of a Chinese bookie is is great but I'm not sure if that's the best one to start on yeah you got to work up to it and
0: I definitely agree I think that's one and I'm covering it in this series where with each one I love it more but the first time yeah. I liked it but I didn't love it I think it's it, a it slow also, burn
1: it also helps to you know I think a little bit more about Casavetes mm-hmm. as a as a filmmaker because I feel like that film it's a lot about it's a lot about himself and it's a lot about I don't know how, how money ruins things yeah. <laughs> I feel like, yeah. uh, you know yeah. it, or just his his general kind of philosophy as a, as a filmmaker so I, I feel like that's a good one to kind of build up to even if mm-hmm. you know arguably it's it's his best film I, I think you could say so
0: it, yeah exactly yeah I think I would agree I would say something like an opening night or a mini Moskowitz could be good yeah. too that's not going to leave you you know drained yeah but Gloria is also a great and glory is probably my second favorite i love that movie i the first one i saw was shadows oh that's and great too. Yeah. it's interesting to go that far back i think i just was like oh let me start up you know near the beginning and i haven't seen shadows in a long time it hasn't been one i wanted to revisit right away but i was interested enough to be like okay now i need to go through the rest some of them were just like okay i need some sort of background like fine you could watch them and it either piques your interest or it deters you but some of them i'd be like okay let's start with one other one first and then you can (laughs) get into this and get into the more you know you know intense stuff second question is the double bill okay so what film would you pair this one with if you're creating a double bill either for yourself or for someone else you can do more than one film uh because i know there's a lot to pair it with but kind of what would you pair it with and What's, what's the reasoning behind it, essentially?
1: I thought maybe the obvious pairing would have been with Mike Lee's Topsy Turvy, because that's all about mm. the stage and going through the process okay. of... It's a very different process, but it's about Gilbert and Sullivan putting together the Mikado mm-hmm. and the kind of creative process and the collaborative process. And I think Mike Lee is probably a good analog to Cassavetes yes. as far as like working with actors and kind of trying to find these truthful places in in sometimes very extreme emotions. The other... Double bill. I I picked just different. Is the Mighty with Sharon Stone, and it's got a little Kieran Culkin in it. Oh, okay. uh, About two boys, where one is um, smart but physically disabled, and the other one's strong but not that smart, and they decide to basically form one super kid (laughs) but it's it's got uh, jenna rollins and harry dean stanton playing the grandmother and grandfather and it's really great to see them in that you know it it does probably air a little bit on the schmaltzy side melodramatic side if you're coming off of a cassavetes film but it's it's a sweet movie and i don't know i've been on kind of a sharon stone kick lately i was reading her um autobiography beauty of living twice and uh she played uh she played gloria in the remake, so maybe yes. there's some kind of yep. extra connection there i don't know if you want to see more jenna rollins and uh, if also if you're a harry dean stanton fan you get to see them yes. together and that's a lot of fun
0: okay so <laughs> i i'm looking at the poster now and i was like i guess i it had been on my radar but i'd forgotten that it was, that was called, one of those films i called? saw the
1: i saw the trailer on like some vhs i had like probably like 20 times i forget what it was now but i always remember like going past that trailer back when you used to
0: mm-hmm.
1: have uh, videotapes, do you fast forward through stuff? But yeah. then I didn't see it for like 30 years or however long. And then, um, or uh, well, probably like more like 20 years, but mm-hmm. then I finally watched it like uh, maybe two or three years ago. And I'm like, Oh, this is, this is sweet. It's a,
0: yeah. it's got
1: like one of those casts that hard to replicate because it's like the right amount of people who are kind of like on the upswing in their career that they're yeah. not quite famous yet. Like it's got a, Oh, it, it's got, um, james gandolfini like before before he was in
0: sopranos, sopranos or mm-hmm.
1: stuff like that and um yeah i'm looking you know, it, at it's got a couple actors now who, <laughs> yeah it's it's good it's
0: <laughs> i see meatloaf is in it sting is in this movie yeah uh dillian anderson <laughs> it's cool okay well, I'm going to have to look out for that.
1: <laughs> Maybe make it the double feature. Don't don't start off with it while yeah. it's opening night. But yeah.
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Those are two interesting ones. Um, I have three that I'll kind of rapid fire uh, name off. So the first one I thought it was Beware of a Holy Horror Fastpender oh. of just going like really intense <laughs> that, kind of obnoxious though. Like,
1: it went from like my least favorite fastbender movie to like oh yeah maybe not my most favorite but it it was like a big swing where i was like oh i hate this movie oh this movie's kind of secretly amazing <laughs> it's
0: it's definitely one of those on the first watch you're yeah. like um this is a lot to get through and then it builds with you i i mean i love fastbender
1: yeah that, that's another film where like he, you know it's this giant mess and then he comes together and yes. it all comes together where it's like snap snap snap
0: Exactly. So I figured that would be a good... I probably would start off with that and then opening night second. Another one where I'd start off with first would be um Living in Oblivion, the Tom chilo. Okay. I thought that would be a fun one to just kind of also a messy set and...
1: I think about the uh, the Peter Dinklage scene like on a regular yeah. basis. It's like one of those things that like every time I, I see um somebody who's like an actor with dwarfism in mm-hmm. a movie to be like, oh, isn't this weird? I I just go right to that scene. Yes. <laughs>
0: but, I like I like that movie a lot. It's a lot yeah. of fun. I still would start off with that in an opening night. And then the third one, which is just kind of playing off the you know, meta elements in this film. And I would start with opening night first because I'd want to end with real life, the Albert Booth movie, just because I think it's just, it's another level of chaos in that movie. And I think (laughs) you kind of want to end your night with that and just seeing, you know, how dark a director can get when pushed to the edge and they're pushing the people are involved in the film to the edge. So it's just, it would be a fun parallel to uh, opening night. So That's a great, very
1: chaotic kind of marathon.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, that
1: scene I love in uh, *But Where the Holy Horror* is when Eddie Constantine, who's basically mm-hmm. has this like crisis of conscience, where he's like, "No, I I can't kill a woman with a karate chop on screen," and he's like dead serious. And they're trying to talk him into doing this scene, but you know, it's that like classic thing of the actor realize like, like oh i like i can't do that, that that's not yeah. right and <laughs> just but <laughs> the whole idea of like i'm gonna kill somebody with a karate chop and yeah you know it's this big moment with him but yeah those are all great picks i think those are fantastic
0: i think all will all five of the movies are great compliments to such a great film like opening night well, I think that if you haven't seen this movie and you're listening to this, well, that's great. I think you should go and watch it. And I think if you haven't seen it in a while, definitely go back and rewatch it, because I think there's such great rewatch value on with Cassavetti's films and with this film. So thanks so much, Martin, for joining me and tackling opening night with me. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you. This was a great time. Uh, I'd love to come back sometime, anytime. Just let me know.
0: Seeing Faces in Movies is an official podcast of the Royal Film Club. It's hosted and edited by Felicia Maroney, with intro music by Lamar Walker. If you like what you heard, let us know at seeingfacesandmovies.com or send us an email at seeingfacesinmovies at gmail.com. And while you're at it, please subscribe and rate the show wherever you listen to your podcast. And stay tuned for our next episode on Minnie and Moskowitz.